It's interesting because I believe one of the hardest things for our flesh to hold to is resting in the sufficiency of the gospel. Resting in the sufficiency of the gospel. And when we say the word gospel, you know, we talked about that last week. We talk about the word sufficiency. You know, is the gospel enough? Is the report of Christ, is the good news of what Christ has done for us enough for us? And another way to put that is this. Is Jesus, the God-man, enough for us? Is Christ and all that He is enough for our joy? Enough for our happiness? Enough for our comfort? Enough for our satisfaction? Or do we desire more? Do we want more? Do we want more of the world? Do we want more of relationships? Do we want more of peace? Do we want what the world has in the context of love and peace and wealth? Jesus says, I will leave you my love that the world does not understand. Jesus says to His disciples, I will give my peace to you that the world cannot comprehend. Paul would teach over and over again that the natural person, the natural man, the flesh, this meat suit that we walk around in every single day is unable to grasp the spiritual things of God. It, we, we, we don't really fathom that, do we? Because we can understand the, con, the concept of things. We can say, oh, well, you know, this means this, and I understand that, and I understand the other. But beloved, our heart, our mind, our countenance, our disposition cannot truly sit still and just exist in the sovereignty of God and in His finished work and in His person except that God Himself do a work in us. And that is called faith. Resting in the sufficiency and the satisfaction of Jesus is faith. That's what it is. And as we learn and as we grow, we understand the teachings of Jesus, all of them, by learning the Bible. But do you know there's not one thing that we know and there is not one person that exists today who has been granted divine faith that has not first heard the Word? Faith is granted by the hearing of the teaching of Christ. Whether one reads it for themselves or whether they hear someone else explain it, the truth of the gospel, the person of Jesus, is indeed the power of God unto salvation, for it is the good report of God sovereignly and freely saving a people through His Son. The Old Testament is the roadmap to this. The Old Testament is the foreshadowing of this reality that we as New Testament saints hold to and understand by divine power. We know that there is nothing more to this life except Jesus Christ. That is why Paul teaches us that He is preeminent. Beloved, we sing it a lot of times, don't we? That kindred may go and... Goods may go, and riches may go, and health may go, and the world would grow strangely dim, but the love of God for us is all, that's, that, all that will ever remain. 
And because He has loved us in this eternal way, because He is sovereign and powerful and purposeful in His decrees and promises, we then can say, now I can love one another. Now we can love each other as Christ has loved us. But I'll tell you right now, beloved, anybody under the sound of my voice that has perfected this type of living, please stand up and give the report. For we definitely could use the encouragement. But I'll be honest with you. It would not be an encouragement to my soul to hear you say you had perfected love. You had perfected faith. Because then it would make God a liar. Because God says that He alone is perfect. He alone is love. He alone is righteousness. He alone is good. And so that only that which God calls good is good. And the only reason that it is good is because God has called it good. Because He has declared it righteous as He is righteous. He has declared it set apart because He is set apart. He has declared it holy because He alone is holy. And this is the good news. This is the simple gospel. This is simple grace. This is the quintessential centerpiece and every block and shingle that is built upon the centerpiece of the house of grace. Every penny in the economy of grace is made of the same substance. And that is the person and the work of Jesus Christ for His people, which is a finished and accomplished salvation. That's what we've been learning in Genesis. That's what we've been seeing. But you know, platitudes are easy to pass, away, pass out, right? Sort of like handbills. If you don't know what those are anymore. People don't go to the mailbox. Oh, did my friend write me? <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't wait for letters anymore. I found a lot of my letters from my friends overseas throughout the years, especially in my high school and early college days, and some of them in foreign languages and things. And I was amazing how much language you don't remember when you don't use it or read it. But it was interesting because I'm going through all these letters and, you know, and Abigail comes in. She's like, Dad, what is this? I'm like, oh, this is how we used to talk to one another. <laughs> See all these stamps and it took a week to get here and, you know, sometimes it got lost. We don't do that anymore. We don't talk like that. It's always instant. But beloved, God is talking to us through His Word. God is speaking to us. God is uh, purposing to reveal Himself in this Genesis account. We have this good report. We have this intimate reality of the Lord's doing. And I will tell you that sometimes we suffer too much thinking that we have got to get so many things correct in order to satisfy God's righteousness. When the good news says that God Himself has satisfied His righteousness. The Word of the Lord says here, in chapter 2, or chapter 3, I don't know why I said 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it 
lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and gave some with her, to her husband who was standing with her, who also ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate of it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent that you made gave me, deceived me, didn't give, but deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, and this is one of the places we'll be today, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, not start it, multiply it. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, we've already talked about a lot of this, but we were not finished. We talked about the idea of nakedness and unashamedness. They were naked and not embarrassed because there was no reason for them to be embarrassed. They were good. They were clothed in the presence of God's uh, uh, goodness. They were clothed in His company. They were innocent to evil and they were innocent to sin, but they themselves were not righteous. To be righteous is to be God. 
So Adam and Eve were created creatures. They were not God, nor were they the God-man, Jesus the Christ, who took on flesh. So therefore, they were in a state of innocence, but they were not in a state of righteousness. For the one who is righteous can never fail. God Himself can never sin. He can never be tempted by sin, nor does He tempt anyone to sin, James says, as we talked about last week. But what tempts us is that we... In our flesh, desire that which is dangled in front of us. And when, it is de- when, when we give into that desire, it what? It produces sin. And when sin has given birth, it produces death. And death has entered the world this first day. This first season of life. With this first couple, newly engaged, newly betrothed, and newly united, came to understand what death really was. And now they were naked, and they hid from the Lord. Adam and Eve, as I've said before, sought their own wisdom. Even before the fall, they sought their own wisdom. They were told by the serpent, by the enemy, let's just call it what it is, it's Lucifer speaking, tempting them by that which was already tempting to their flesh. It looked good to eat. It looked good in general. And now that I know that it can make me wise, that's a really good idea. What hope do we have, beloved, who have not walked in the cool of the day with the God-man Jesus, seeing Him face to face, in a state of innocence, yet those who walk with Him in a state of innocence also fail for a piece of fruit? What hope do we have to affect our own righteousness. But that's the first thing that these people did. I'll answer the question so you don't have to sit here. You know the answer. We cannot affect our own righteousness and every effort that we put forth in order to affect our own righteousness before God is sin. Adam and Eve knew immediately they were naked. They could see evil. They understood who they were. Adam and Eve's understanding of evil, their first peer into evil was a peering into their own hearts, into their own minds. Think about that for a second. They knew evil because they knew themselves. They knew they had rebelled against the promises and the provision of God. They knew that they had put a condition on a secondary option that would make what God had promised even better. Isn't that the way it works? We think that we can take and and add to the gospel. We can take years of experience and go, well, in my experience, and then we think that's wisdom when it comes to salvation or to biblical understanding. Or we can look at the world and go, you know, historians have always said, well, beloved, historians are the ones writing the books on what they think history says. And it's not complete. Well, theologians say, or this doctrine means, okay, but what has God said? See, it always starts with a twisting of what God has said. And none of us are immune. None of us are immune. I was listening to an older sermon Um, just yesterday, someone said, ah, listen to this. See what you think about the first five minutes of this. Me teaching. I went, oh, this is good. This is okay. Oh, this is 
that didn't even make sense. And I realized during that time, it was like 2015, 2016, I was in the middle of trying to hone my vocabulary as it related to the idea of assurance. And thankfully, I had a lot of brothers come along and we had this debate together and we spit on each other because we overspoke and then we got to the ends of the nitty-gritty of the Bible and went, ah, now we see. When we say this, we're actually saying this in the ears of most people, so let's change the way we say these things. See? Because that's what love does, right? God's Word is the supreme authority, not the interpretation of it. God's Word is the absolute declaration not my commentary of it. Now, can my thoughts and commentary be as authoritative as the Bible? You betcha, if it is what the Bible teaches. And that is why we check what every man and woman and child has to say. And that's why we understand the context of Scripture. I think that as I've been reminiscing of in Genesis, the, especially about the fall, there is so much, ridic- there's so many ridiculous ideas about the fall and all these things. And you have to understand that this is laid out for our encouragement and joy to see the sovereignty of God. That's what Genesis is all about, the beginning exposition of the revelation of the sovereignty of God. And yet, We can say, well, the Lord's Word says, and we can be 100% wrong. And we can quote the verse, and we can be 100% wrong. And we can add to it, and we can be 100% wrong. But the Lord is never wrong, and His prophets are never wrong, and His, His apostles were never wrong in their writing. Because they wrote not by their own will, but they wrote by the protection of God the Holy Spirit. And Paul was good at differentiating his ideas that seemed wise versus God's commands that are complete wisdom. And this fall started because innocent people were unable, I want you to hear this, they were unable to resist their own flesh. Eve and Adam desired what was offered to them or it would not have been appealing to them. You ever been invited to a timeshare presentation? And you swear and you put it in blood. We're just going to go get the free gift card. Three hours later, you're signing papers. I swore I would not buy that. It's tempting. Oh, you don't want a free vacation? How about $1,000 a month? For what? You don't know. It's just like printed certificates. You can't spend it except in the company store. I digress. It's desirable. And if that sales pitch doesn't work, they got five more guys in the back, like tag team wrestlers, ready to go. Huh. This guy over here, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me show you what you can really get this far. Door-to-door salesman. You ever bought something from a door-to-door salesman? We have. An entire set of encyclopedias for $1,500. 
1998. Easy payments of $9 a year. I mean, you know, for 75 years. I mean, you know, they get you. Man, I can't afford that. Can you afford $9? Yes, sir. $9 a month. $9 a year. I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course. We're still paying those off. <laughs> but you, you, Like, wow, this is too good to be true. Adam and Eve desired to know more about why this fruit was prohibited. And their flesh had no choice but to desire it. By the sovereign decrees of the Lord. But God did not make them eat that fruit. They ate it of their own volition. And that's what they were destined to do. Well, that doesn't make no sense. Well, we're not smart enough to understand God's sovereignty in that. But we don't blame God. We praise God. So here is this twisting of Scripture. Did God say that? Adam had already added to in some sense. Or so Eve blamed him. Well, God said couldn't touch it. We talked about that last week. Then we see this continual blame game. So now they're naked and they decide in that great wisdom that it told them to eat of this fruit, to gain their godlike status, which they did get in the knowledge of evil, they would cover themselves so the Lord would not see their nakedness. It's like the doorbell ringing when you're getting out of the shower. You know? It's that salesman again, ready to ring the doorbell, that or a Russellite trying to convert you. Either way, it's always inconvenient. You don't just bust out there on the porch in your birthday suit. You cover up. And that's what's happening here. They're trying to hide their guilt before the Lord in their own way. But does the Lord cover their guilt and absolve them of that guilt through their own ability or their own idea or their own wisdom? No. God does something different. He says in verse 21, listen to the words here, and the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve. Now who's the actor there? The Lord God made. For who? For Adam and for Eve. For His creation. For His people. What did He make them? Garments. They were clothed in the presence of His righteousness. Clothed in the decree of His goodness. Clothed in the promise of eternal life through His provision. And they did not want it. They wanted more, and they got more. Death. And then they tried to cover themselves. This is a picture, beloved. It's a picture of self-righteousness. It's a picture of self-will. It's a picture of decisionism. It's a picture of taking the Bible and putting together a bunch of inferences to make your own doctrine. It's a picture of unlovingness. It's a picture of untrusting. It's a picture of an impossible fool's errand that we could affect our righteousness in any way. God made garments. What were they? Garments of leaves. They had garments. 
Garments of skins. Garments of skins. Now, if all we had was chapter 3 of Genesis, this would be a very difficult thing to assess because we'd be coming to the place of trying to figure out what the story is trying to teach us. But because we have the apostles and all of the prophets, we have the clear teaching of the whole counsel of God's Word, we know exactly what is taking place here because the Apostle Paul, specifically in Romans and in Hebrews, points back to it. In Galatians as well. How about that? Almost in all the writing. And so does, so do the Gospels. That God took an animal and in some way took its skin. How do you take the skin of an animal? I mean, are there like no-skinned horses running around in Eden? Is there a lamb out there somewhere that's just like zombie lamb? Just muscle, no skin? Something has to die to get its skin. To get a hide, it has to be killed and butchered. Something has to die to cover sin. And that which dies in order for it to absolve sin must be perfect. And then the Lord takes away His provision and gives another one. Adam and Eve are separated from God in death. And beloved, perseverance... I mean, imagine that for a second. I I, I wanted to say this, I don't know if I said this or not, but Adam and Eve decided they wanted to persevere in the garden. (gasps) We're naked. Get in there and let's make something to cover our nakedness. Because we can't hang out with the Lord unclothed, which is true. If we're not righteous, we cannot be in the presence of God. If we're not as He is in all perfection, there is no way He can stand with us. Because He is separate. The word for that is holy. He's separated in such a way that nothing is like Him. Yet they think they can persevere by their own hands. But it's not enough. And even God's giving them skins to cover their nakedness was not sufficient for them to remain in His presence, nor was it sufficient for them to have eternal life. Because He throws them out of the garden and says, Get away from My presence. You cannot live in this state. Though it does require Me doing something, this is just a shadow of that which I will do. And what's crazy... And that's a southern term of saying what's very interesting. Is that God has already told them what He was going to do before He gave them clothes. So as they're being charged and tried, they're naked with fig leaves or whatever kind of leaves there were. Azaleas, holly bushes. Maybe it was holly. (laughs) For those of you who understand holly. Or poison ivy. (laughs) I'm done. That's the third time today I've lost my train. I've derailed it. Fourth. Yes, God promised. While they're being given the curse, there they are, clothed in their own ability, which is worthless. And then God shows them the shadow of what will come, and then He shows them what it looks like in the covering of their nakedness and guilt by the flesh of an animal. 
But what is it that God has done? I alluded last week to... I'll look forward, but... I alluded last week to Romans 6, where it says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, or in Christ Jesus. We know that Paul says in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness. They show the point to it. It's a shadow. The righteousness of God is fully understood and seen and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is to be received and understood, it's a better word there, by faith. And then Paul would go on to say that it is a gift in and of itself, God's divine creative power to work in us the resting, the ability to rest against our senses, against our knowledge, and against our personal wisdom, to rest in His promises and provision of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the one who was skinned for our transgressions. Isaiah. The one who bled and died. But God shows us the wages of sin. A wage is something that you deserve. You have to be paid what you owed. The one who does not pay you what you owed is evil and is due prison. If you've earned the wage. The wage of sin is death. Adam and Eve received death. But the free gift of God, which is in contrast, justice says die, grace says live. But in order for grace to be just, justice has to be satisfied in grace. God just can't say, ah, it's okay. You're forgiven. It's impossible. He must satisfy His wrath with something that satisfies righteousness, His essence, His person, His glory, all that He is. Jesus Christ is the only one who will satisfy that righteousness in wrath. See, a lot of times we forget that grace, as it means unmerited favor or gift, literally means gift, something that's gifted to you, Sometimes we forget that God deals with all sin in just wrath. And that the wrath He pours out, I want you to listen to this, the wrath He pours out on Jesus Christ is grace for you and me. Because if He did not pour it out on Christ, He could not forgive us. How do we get the grace, the gift of life? Because God graciously and vengefully and justly and legally poured out our wage on Jesus. And then He gifts us His glory, righteousness, imputed. That means it's not us being righteous. I mean, how's that going for you? For He has not given us a spirit of fear. How's that going for you? I'm way behind the bell curve on that one. I was up all night. Didn't sleep one hour. Time I shut my eyes. I said, oh, Father, please let me sleep. Thoughts, 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 thoughts. Burdens, anxiety, fear, frustration, 
irritation, anger. All in a minute, second. Wait a minute, is the air on? It's hot. I mean, you know, now I have to go to the restroom. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, what is going on? Now, yeah, fear. Love your neighbor as yourself. How's that going? Some of us couldn't even get to church with the person we're driving with, loving them correctly, whether it be a child or a spouse or a best friend or a neighbor or the guy that we ran over and we'll pick up after church. Let's be honest. We have no righteousness of our own. And if we're left to ourselves and God counts our attempts at righteousness to our credit, guess what we get? Death. We earn death. But the free gift of God is Jesus Christ the Son in our place. Chapter 3 shows us clearly this picture. You die, and because you have died, you're going to die. That's sort of what God says. And because you're going to die, life and the world around you is going to die. Everything is going to be disheveled. Everything is going to be destroyed. All this order that I showed you that I alone can keep and create is now about to become disorder. And the only reason that it doesn't fall apart now, God speaking, is because I have a divine purpose that I'm going to play out through time. And by the way, God is not in time. All things are at all times done. Time is a creation. And then we'll just move right along from that one. But you are cursed, serpent. The devil was already cursed. Now the snake's cursed. Now see, this sounds like a myth, right? This is the explanation of why trees grow up. This is an explanation of why the sun goes down. I mean, you know, you, you've seen that. The great tortoise that holds the world up and all that. I mean, there's always a story or a fable or a myth that can explain certain natural realities. We I mean, look at Greek mythology, Roman gods and goddesses and demigods and all these other different types of things that have been created through the years. But there's an expression here showing the serpent, the means through which God used to allow Satan or Lucifer, let's call him by his name, to deceive Eve for Adam and Eve to fall of their own desire. Now, this creature is cursed. And I'm scared of a lot of different types of critters. Now I'm scared of hippopotamus, hippopotami. I've been looking at how fierce those things are. They'll hunt you down and eat you and throw you up. I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? I thought they were sweet. Uh, they look sweet. I don't own none of that. And they're water-dwelling type things too. That's crazy. You know, spiders. Spiders. You know, that's why God is going to destroy the earth the second time by fire. So all the spiders will surely die. Um, and, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and then there's a lot of other things that we're fearful of. But there is one thing that, pretty much true around the world for a majority of people. They're scared of snakes, right? There's a reason there. So yeah, there is a literal sense in which people have enmity with snakes. I mean, cats are scared of snakes. Yeah, they jump high. You can watch videos all the time on YouTube. Cats jumping at snakes and snake-like things and cucumbers and other stuff. I don't, 
so mean <laughs> to make a, a, an animal be that scared. But here when God says, I will put enmity between you, He's now speaking directly to the reality of what death does. It puts enmity. What is enmity? Well, we could use a lot of phrases and words. Enmity, simply put, is just hatred. Bad vibes. Unlovingness. Division. Death. You, the woman and you, you're going to be at odds for the rest of your lives. You're never going to be at peace. Now that's true of some, most, most women, not all women, but some women, some men, and snakes, but it's true of all humanity and the enemy. And it's true of all humanity and the Lord. And then he says, her offspring. And here is where you just have to pay close attention. Because when he says offspring, he's talking about the seed of a woman. And without going into a whole lot of biology, typically this type of thing in a patriarchal Semitic system would be through the lineage of a man. And when we see that the apostles point to this as the virgin birth, as the incarnation of the God-man in the garden, promised in the garden, we see this promise of the one who shall come from woman who will crush the head of the serpent. What does it mean to crush the head of the serpent? To kill it. And the New Testament is full of these types of references. Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. Christ has what? victorious over sin and death. This is the picture. This is the promise. It's the gospel that Jesus Christ will come into the world, which is why God created it, in order that He would be the one to be crushed for the iniquities of God's people, and that in doing so, He would destroy the wage of sin for His people. And then 16 through 19... We see all these other problems. And I'll get to those next week. These problems, you know, childbearing, child rearing, all sorts of things, this ruling over the wife type situation, this desire shall be for her husband. You notice your translation says contrary. That's what it, that's what it means. And then all of this hard work, hard work. Work and labor are part of God's gifts, as we'll see. But because of sin, it's never-ending, and it's hard. It does not yield that which it could have yielded. And beloved, the work of creation will never yield life perpetually. As we've already learned, only God can yield perpetual life, eternal life. And so then we see that what God has done in the skin of an animal, He will fulfill ultimately in the skin of His Son who takes on human flesh. And the reason this is all there is to teach about God's grace. 
which is sovereign and free. Now see, these are terms that we use. And these are terms that we use to illustrate ideas that we have come up to understand and define based on our reading and study of Scripture throughout our life and historically. But if I say the word sovereign and I say the word free, most of us know in a simple way what those words mean. But when I say free grace, that is not also sovereign grace, then I'm talking about something completely different. If I say sovereign grace, that is not also free grace, I'm talking about something completely different. Because sovereign grace in and of itself is just God providing grace. Free grace in and of itself is that it's unmerited. But without these two working together in the context of what the Scripture teaches us, even in the creation account and the fall of humanity, together we will misinterpret and misunderstand. And we will find little, you know how you sort of, you, you hear a song sometimes. You're like, wait a minute, I know that song. But it's not the song you thought it was. It sounded like it. Or it's a really bad cover in the elevator. You know, it's the Boston Symphony C band trying to do some Michael Jackson. I mean, I've heard that. It's bad. Oh, that was a pun. Okay. <laughs> Unintentional. Wow, I'm on a roll today. Sovereign grace and free grace. See, we always think we're right in our own eyes. Well, I understand that, Steph. Well, do we? Has God given us learning or have we just been told and we can recite what we're told? You know, there are gospel preachers who are unconverted. Throughout all of history. And there are brothers and sisters who can recite the gospel who are unconverted. And there are some people who make a mess of things at times because of the Judaizers and the Gnostics and everybody else that come in and try to add new things and process new ways of filtering siblinghood. And they could be completely regenerate and just be completely confused. But... There are also people who accuse me of saying what I didn't say right then and say, you're saying people can come to faith through a false gospel? No, stop being a liar. I didn't say that. You are a liar if you say I say that. And none of you say that. So let's just rest. In what? The gospel of free and sovereign grace. But let's understand what it means. See, we always think we're right in our own eyes. We ignore the promises of God and the truth of the Scripture And when we do that, we're trying to be right in our own eyes. We don't know it. It's not like we get up and go, I am right in my own eyes. Right in my eyes. That's my new name tag. We're not getting up doing that. It's deceitful. We've been deceived by our own flesh. I mean, Eve wasn't going, you know, God's going to get me, but that fruit, i got to eat it. i got to be wise. Just make He's not here, is He? Adam, where is the Lord? I think he's walking outside. He can't see us. Let's just... No, she's like, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. The Lord's going to come up here. We're going to be more like peers now. We're going to be able to talk about things at a different level. Our theology discussion is going to be amazing. I can't wait to talk about the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding of being like God. He just doesn't understand what he's trying to withhold. He's lonely. He needs us. That's, that's contemporary Christian 
theologians right now. God needs me. God doesn't need any of us. He won't use anybody who thinks he need, that, 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 they, that he needs them. Never has, never will. Just get up and throw everything away and walk off the face of the earth to do God's work without preparation, training, and years of patience. Baloney. Doesn't happen. Anybody called to the ministry without years of patience and planning is a liar. They're just a little old boy playing house. It's like giving somebody a plastic shovel and saying, go be a farmer. It's not going to work. The Scripture's clear. Scripture's clear. We don't find our own path. And sometimes we find our own path to understanding sovereignty and grace and everything else, satisfaction, spiritual maturity, assurance. And in the end, all these things lead to death. Sometimes we think, well, you know, God is creating me to be a new man in His image. No, He is not. That is not taught in the Scripture. I'd love to see it without 15 separate proof texts over 9 books. Show me in the context that it's also taught in the other context. That is a proof text. Anybody can produce conjecture and inference and make a logical and valid argument and go, see, I was right. Mainly... That's what all the cults of the world have done. All the Christian cults of the world. All the evangelical cults of the world. Listen to the Word of God. There's no new man. Jesus is the new man. He is the image of God. I've been saying this for years and people look at me like, but I'm, I'm doing better. No, we're not doing better. You're not doing better. The very fact that when you hear that you're not growing in absolute goodness to a degree that would be comparable to the person of Christ and it upsets you, proves you're not good. You see? The very fact that I get flustered by that proves that I'm not good. It's aggravation, irritation. These are not things that the Spirit of God does for His people. God does not cause us to have an elevated blood pressure and a heartbeat and breathe and panic because we don't like something. That is sin. That is flesh. When we get angry, it is sin. Well, the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Exactly. I got to protect the truth. I got to protect my own. I got to... Just go into beatboxing then because you do a better job at it. We need to relax in the promises of grace, sovereign and free. God the Spirit helps us and grows us and leads us, but He does not rearrange us. What is repentance but faith and trust and assurance and satisfaction in Christ? That the mind of the flesh says everything it wants to say in its in the inside, and the gospel says no. But I got to paint the wall. No. Well, I got to dress like no. Well, I got to change my no. And some of us had learned to be quiet, but still try. And we're failing. 
failing at faith. Thank God our faith isn't what justifies us. But our faith rests in the report of the one who is faithful, who justified us. So it's called good news. So the Spirit helps us, not rearrange us. He grants repentance, which is faith in His promises. Faith in His work. See, it's so simple. It flusters us. It ruffles our feathers. It pets the cat backwards. Whatever other illustration can get you all to see that it's not good to the flesh. And we hate that stuff. And beloved, all of us have an inkling of self-righteousness in us if we're breathing today. Well, not me. There it is. If you just said not me, that was it. Well, I don't see that. Of course you don't. Doesn't mean you're lost. means you're immature. Could be a sign of unconvertedness. Depends on where your hope lies. Because God will show you the truth. And the Word of God will show you the truth. And the Word of God will show you how to live the truth. And the one who is being led by the Spirit, who is calm and at rest, who is spiritual and maturing, they will believe and trust, even through the kicks and screams sometimes, the promises of God. That God's promises are sovereign. That God's power is sovereign. That God's gospel is sovereign. That God's grace is sovereign. To think that we're becoming like Jesus is to believe the lie of the serpent. We have the promise of being just like Him one day. Yes, we are called because we are redeemed to put away the flesh, to put on good words, good thoughts, good deeds, to flee immorality, to speak to one another with respect, to be submissive to government, to not speak ill of any human being in the world. There went our memes. I mean, you know. It's just, we live in a culture of Christian wickedness. And we're all in it. Praise God for His glorious grace, sovereign and free. For if it were not for the gospel, we would perish. So where does that leave us? It leaves us being shown day after day, minute after minute, second after second, that if it were not but, but for the grace of God, He would smite us and be justified in doing so. But because He has smitten His Son, it's because He has destroyed His Son, because He has crucified His Son, He cannot smite us. Because the debt has been paid. Therefore, we live in the obedience of faith. As Paul would teach in the Romans. Because sovereignty and free needs to be understood clearly. God made for Adam. God said, I will put enmity. God said, I will multiply your pain. God said, God said, God said. Now why? Do you think God started Moses out with the creation of the world? Before? Why couldn't He just start here? Because we had to see first that God could say what He wanted and it happened. And nothing could stop it. 
So that when we get to the fall, when God says, when you eat of this tree, you will die, it happened. Then when they died, God says, I will cause, I will curse, I will put, I will make, I will. Who will? Now, if you know the fall of Lucifer, what is it that Lucifer did? Lucifer said in his heart, I will. He didn't get up in God's face. He said in his heart, I will ascend to that stage and stand with the Lord. Look at us together, what we could be. And God threw him out. Threw him out of the garden. Threw him out of the garden of worship into the garden of Eden. God shuts off all natural means to life because only supernatural power can give it. Sovereignty needs to be understood in these ways according to the Scripture. There's too much for me to go through here, but it will give us a little bit of a hors d'oeuvre. God approved that He alone could create good from nothing, could divide and order the cosmos, and now that only in His promises and power can any or child find righteousness apart from their own flesh. Now God will provide another promise here in creation which pointed to Christ, a sovereign mercy that is free and sovereign. Sovereign, we hear the words King of Kings, Lord of Lords, first and last. And we need to understand that the Scripture, of course, the the Bible tells us, I am God, there is no other, I do what I want, no one stays my hand, I'll have my way, nothing can stop me, I don't care about your ideas or desires or actions because nothing can stop me. This is God's paraphrase to you this morning. And check it, don't take my word for it. Where there is a shadow of a true sovereign in the world, like a government, a king, or a sovereign, or a lord, they're just there because God has decreed them to be there. They're not sovereign. He is all of them, over all of them, rather. He is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. So of every king, a king is nothing but a servant of the true Lord and King. God is the one who is Elohim. He is the one who is the highest of all things. God delegates authority, as Paul would teach us, and it also, the Scripture of the Prophets even teaches that God establishes kings and governments and they rise and fall by His decrees. Kings can become cows and cows can become kings. And so on and so forth. God, even in creation, saw that He showed His sovereignty in that He created lights to rule the day and to rule the night. He is the Lord over light. And that light, as we see in John's Gospel, is Christ. In 1 Timothy 6, the Scripture says in verse 15, it says, "...which He will display at the proper time, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords." In Romans 13, one I've already mentioned, but it's like every person should be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist have been instituted or created by God. In Psalm 29, there's a bunch of Psalms that we do. Psalm 29 verse 10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4. 
And we could go on and on and on, and we could see that God, as it says there, His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Romans 9 pops into my mind as that is read in my heart. Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So we see the, the majesty of creation, the, 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 the staunchness and, and the stoicness of government and kingdoms, and then small things like birds and hair. Revelation 19, which is an incredible picture. I don't want to derail what I'm thinking here, but that's where it talks about is sword and tattoos on his arms and legs and his robe is dipped in blood of his enemies and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is, this is like a guy you don't want to let in your house if he's selling stuff. $9 a year or not. But it says on his robe and his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a sovereign God. So grace is sovereign in that he executes its efficacy. That means it works because He does it. Grace in and of itself is not a thing that does anything. Grace is the manner in which God operates toward His people in salvation so that we understand what the Scripture teaches according to the Scripture when grace is attributed to God possessively in the grammar. It is always Him saving His people sovereignly without merit in His power, without their permission, without their decisions, and certainly without anything they could bring to the table. And it's also free. That means there is nothing the creature can promise, nothing the creature can provide, nothing the creature can perform that would come in return for salvation or as payment for salvation. Grace is free. The gospel is free. God's sovereignty executes His purposes and salvation freely as He determines. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Think mercy when you hear the word grace because that's a better translation. God's mercy. Why? Because we have worn the word grace out to where it doesn't mean anything anymore. Like love. We love pizza. We love movies. We love the Lord. We love our spouse. Oh, gosh. There's a wide variety of meaning behind that, right? That's why when you're in the fourth grade, you say, man, I really love these shoes. Somebody goes, why don't you marry a man? We've all heard it. Grace, mercy, salvation. It's not offered from God. It's decreed by God. It's purposed. It's finished. God said it. It is. He decreed it. This is a promise. To deny God's promise or to condition God's promises of eternal life on anything that we can do as creatures is to desire to be like God. Is to say, I will take the divine power in my hand and I will work it for myself. Or I will meet God in a synergistic way. I will work together in power with God and God will allow me. Folks, this is, the, this is what myths are made of. It's what stories are. It's what fairy tales. This is why we have the Avengers, not Avenger. That's why even in the most powerful superheroes or false gods out there, there's always something that can thwart their plans and do something. There's always something they're waiting on to do. 
waiting on somebody else to do. God waits on no one. He purposes and causes all things to work after the counsel of His own will. He answers to no one. He does not look through time because time is something He holds in His hand. God does not learn. He is, and He is all things at all times, or knows all things at all times. He is not all things, except in the spiritual sense, in preeminence. The decree, I will put, I will make, He shall. God is the one doing. And because of that, God alone is the one who has said what is good news. He has said that it was good, this is not good, this is good, this is not good. I will do this and it will be good. To deny grace in a sovereign way and to deny that grace is free is to deny the gospel. I'm going to say that again. To deny the gospel is the same thing as denying free and sovereign grace. And I'm not talking about to say these positions or these things, but let me say something, beloved. If I say that which Scripture says in my own words, it is as authoritative as Scripture. Because sometimes hillbillies have to translate. Sometimes my lack of intellect has to put it in terms that I can relate to. But if it is saying what God's Word is saying, it is authoritative. The Word is authoritative. The fall of man reveals only the outcome of what man's free choices can attain. Self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-glory, which ends in death. And because grace is sovereign and free, because God is sovereign and free in His power to save His people, and it is a done deal, we can have assurance. Adam and Eve had assurance this day. God will crush the head of the work of, of the serpent. He will crush the work of the serpent through the seed of the woman by shedding His blood and taking His righteousness and clothing His people in true righteousness that they'd never had before, even before the fall. They were just in the presence of righteousness and innocence, just like the trees and the snakes. Assurance, as we've learned, also is God's promise and has nothing to do with man's performance. The God-man has performed everything required for salvation, everything required in his humanity also for righteousness because he is righteous. So everything that Jesus has said, thought, or done and desired is righteousness. So faith alone reveals what God has done by His power through Jesus Christ. And God grants the resting of this promise. And that is what faith is. It is easy to get this confused as a means of assurance. Like 1 John says. It was always so difficult to explain that. You ever find yourself, you know that what you're trying to say is wrong but you're thinking rightly. And the more you speak, the worse it sounds when you're trying to explain spiritual things. And then one day, you just sit down and read and it's like, wow. That is God's blessed patience. doesn't mean that you don't believe the truth. It means you don't really know how to explain the truth. Because the minute we think we know how to explain the truth, we'll think we're the effectual agent for redemption. For others, won't we? Yeah, we're not. God's mercy is. 
God alone is. So, as I've said already, I think our language needs to rest in the biblical mode of expression. Even if it contrasts with the historical mode of expression. Otherwise, sheep get scared. Sheep get scared. When we get to chapter 4, it's, there's a lot of nonsense over there on that. About why Cain was rejected. Cain did this, and Cain thought that. and Cain, Cain was rejected because of the will of God. what happens? If we don't get grace free and sovereign, and we don't learn it, and we don't hold fast to it, we get fearful. We become afraid. We start trying to cover ourselves up, and we want to hide from God the reality of who we are. We want to hide from one another, and each of us thinking the other being such superior spiritual beings will never match up to the guy or gal sitting next to us or in front of us or beside us. But beloved, we're all in the same pot. I start saying, which frog is the cleanest in the bucket? I don't know. The one you bathe. It's still a frog. It's still a snake. It's still a turd. When you get real, that was for the children. Fear is not given by God. Fear is not the precursor to regeneration. Fear is the consequence of death. The Spirit of God does not give fear to His children in the context of redemption. Fear is a natural consequence of sin. The natural consequence of guilt. They hid, they clothed, they knew evil in themselves. And God purposed all these things. He purposed all these things so that He would be the Redeemer of His people. So grace that is sovereign and free is freely given. And because it is sovereign and free, it is effectual. And because it is effectual, that means that it is by God's power. And it is not offered, it is applied. It is working. And it is certain. Beloved, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. We could repeat over and over and over again. And we could look at all these things. And as we continue to go through this, I just thank the Lord that He's helping us to see in the big picture the Gospel. And we could keep going. We could go through the entire book of Genesis. And none of the things written there don't point to the Gospel. And the positive, all those things written there point to the Gospel. The whole point of it all is to show God's sovereignty over every small detail of man's life. And what he's recorded in the history of Genesis shows us that he can be trusted and that his power is great. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your, just for your kindness and for your mercy. And I thank You, Lord, for allowing us to hear the Word this morning and to worship together. Lord, bond us in the Gospel. Help us to pray for each other rather than ponder and fret and fear. It is so easy. We get so bound up in this world and all of the details. 
So Lord, help us to be busy about serving each other and about loving each other as we rest in your salvation so that you might grow us all into a place of peace that the world does not understand. Help us to remember in all the Scripture what you teach us about your work and your power and your promises and your love toward us, your people. And Father, help us to be patient with others. That your sheep and your children who have yet to come to know the truth, Lord, help us be patient with them. To show them the word that at the time that you've allotted, you will open their eyes to see it. Lord, let us throw away suspicion. Let us throw away fear. Help us to put aside all these principles and applications of conditionalism and new laws, Gnosticism. And Lord, just let us be simple people with a simple faith given through simple grace and a simple story that is more than a story. It is your power. It is your glory. It is your face. So help us to look at your face. Help us to see that which you've shown us, which you have shown. Let there be light in the hearts of my people that they may see me for all that I am in the face of my Son, Jesus Christ. That's what your word teaches us, Lord. And that is authoritative to the ends of infamy. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing, beloved.